Brothers, it's genuinely a joy to be able to uh, preach from Revelation this morning uh, to you all. Uh, this morning, as I think a few, of you, a few of you have already heard, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. So I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn your copy of God's Word to Revelation 4. Here in our passage this morning, we're about to behold what is just the beginning of what is quite literally the most stunning, captivating, even awe-inducing uh, passage, I believe, in all of Scripture when it comes to worship. Of God. See, the whole chapter here, bleeding into chapter 5, is actually a giant amalgamation of a worship service, if you will. But for the sake of our time this morning, we're going to focus largely upon just simply one, uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4. Now, before we dive into the actual passage itself, I think it's important for us to understand uh, the actual context of what is going on here in John's vision up until this point. Of course, as we've just been hearing about already this morning from Rick, who's been teaching us, uh, we've understood that, uh, you know, John has already seen that first vision uh, where Christ appears to him and he speaks to the seven churches, most especially. But the book of Revelation as a whole stands before us truly as a culmination of the prophetic witness of God's grandeur and his majesty in all of his covenantal dealings with his people. Revelation is characterized by literary form, figurative language, even apocalyptic visions, as we're about to read, which showcase both God's just judgment against sin and all of his enemies, and yet also the sheer kindness and mercy of God toward his own people. Now, here in Revelation, we're picking up in chapter 4, but contextually speaking, we are still seeing John in a literal exile on the island of Patmos, what is arguably an inhabited island, as some commentators speculated at the time, right off the coast of Ephesus. But here we are made to see uh, the risen Christ come to John the Apostle as John was enraptured by the Spirit in the midst of holy worship on the Lord's Day. And I think that's not an accident that it happens on the Lord's Day as well. See, Revelation itself serves not only, it served not only the people there in that immediate first century context, those fellow bondservants to whom John was writing, but it also stands to serve us as fellow bondservants of this 21st century as a continued word of blessing, blessing in the midst of our own strife in accordance with Revelation 1 verse 3. See, John, the servant of Jesus, received the authoritative instruction from Christ to both write what he saw, but also to send the message of what he saw out to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, even extending to us to this very day. So our passage this morning continues to speak to us, a continued word of blessing from the mouth of our own Savior himself to our own listening ears. Well, with this in mind, without further ado, I want us to attend the word of God here in Revelation 4, verses 1 through 11. The word of God, which is forever faithful and true, says the following to us. After this, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must soon take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, 
and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. All around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. With this will freshen our minds, let's go ahead and come before God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that this morning you've given us the opportunity to read from your word, to hear it read over us and now preached over us. God, I ask that as a mouthpiece of yours, you would use this, this servant of yours to speak your truth and your grace and your love through this passage, that it all would point us to Christ and that we ourselves would be refreshed by this. And may Jesus and all of these things be honored. In his name, amen. amen. Well, friends, as ministers of the gospel of Jesus, I believe that Revelation 4 exhorts us in primarily how to worship. How to worship our king rightly. See, we must uh, first worship our king with awe, which we'll see in the first six verses here in Revelation 4. But secondly, we'll see in the final few verses that we must worship and indeed are invited to worship our king with uttermost joy. The Anglican scholar Richard Bauckham, which I believe we've all read at this point, uh, wisely stated in his book, The Theology of Revelation, that this divinely inspired apocalypsis is before us thoroughly Trinitarian. The Father, of, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the glory of all three are directly referenced here from beginning to end. But Revelation itself is chiefly about Christ who in chapter 1 is denoted as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on the earth. And so from the start of chapter 1 all the way to our own passage here in the fourth chapter, we are made to behold the glory and the power of the triune God expressed to each one of us who have ears to hear this morning. See, amidst all of the figurative language, the repetition of numbers and themes and motifs, we see yet only one king seated on the throne, encircled by the whole host of the heavenly beings, and even, arguably speaking, the sum of the whole creation. Who can rightfully stand before this God? And even more, who can fathom the intrinsic beauty of such a holy God? Brothers, if we're honest with ourselves, our senses toward these things of God become so easily dulled in this life let alone even in our own ministries. 
See, each one of us in this room, I'm convinced, are called servants of Christ, according to the scriptural word over us, even stewards of the mysteries of God, as Paul spoke to the Corinthians. I don't doubt for one second that each one of us long to be faithful shepherds over the respective flocks that God has given us. But all too often, our own private worship becomes riddled with fears and concerns, various anxieties that flood our minds. Over the past two to three weeks now, speaking even of my own self, I've experienced the utmost joys of leading God's people in public worship. Even in personal one-on-one settings, teaching them to seek after the risen Christ with all diligence and fullness of faith. And yet I've experienced simultaneously in the midst of leading others this amount of stressors in the ministry that we all have to face in time. When crises demand your attention, when divisions in the church ensue, when we feel stretched beyond our own, our own ordinary limits in the pastoral care of souls. Friends, we need an answer to these earthly dilemmas in our own ministries. And I'm sure you can relate with these things. But brothers, beyond this, you and I need a transformed reorientation of our minds in such times when we feel perplexed or beaten down beyond reason. We need the figurative lampstands of our own hearts to be set aflame by the Holy Spirit of God anew. And nothing apart from awe-filled worship will accomplish this for us. As such, I'm convinced that this scene in Revelation 4 is purposed to break through the present struggles, strivings, and sufferings of our own lives as Christian leaders. See, this scene here before us, this worship scene, is a scene of unbridled, uninhibited, and uncontainable worship unto the King of Kings. It interrupts us in the midst of our own spiritual labors with the life-giving and most refreshing message of God's holy salvation from on high. Now, just as the young man Elihu in the book of Job summoned Job's attention away from his present pains and sufferings, to behold the glory of the majesty of the Most High. So John the Apostle, I believe, ushers our own mind's eye, of course, through the word of Christ and the inspiration of the scripture, to this heavenly, timeless scene of the Holy One whom we serve, the one who is encompassed all around with pure, unadulterated worship. Again, verse 1 of chapter 4, Revelation, says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uh, often used the same picture of an open door, and he used it primarily to indicate the advancement of the gospel message into new parts of the believer's lives. And I don't think this uh, symbolism here is lost or was lost on the early Christians, nor should it be on us, because this same gospel message needs to make inroads through this door, figuratively speaking, into our own lives. And so even here in Revelation, we are swiftly moved from that first vision of the Son of Man in the first three chapters, the Son of Man speaking to John and the seven churches, now to the vision of the throne room of God Most High. Again, a door for gospel nourishment, if you will, is provided by the capital D door himself, Christ Jesus, the door of his sheep. And so you and I are invited to enter in and behold this vision here. 
Now, G.K. Beale in his masterful commentary on Revelation insists that this vision then is not to be understood as happening, as Rick was saying earlier, not chronologically per se, but consecutively. Not chronologically in time, one after the other, from past to present, but rather consecutively, building upon the same redemptive motif that we see throughout the rest of the book. It's my understanding that the scene in Revelation 4, and we'll find out soon as well as Eric preaches on chapter 5 afterwards, both of these chapters really summon us into beholding what is timeless and unmeasurable. And so far more important than a date on the calendar, you know, where does this scene take place in redemptive history? We see the single most grand continuous worship service in which the holiness of God is on full display. We see, in essence, a call to worship of sorts in verse 1 by Jesus, implicitly speaking. We see a gathering of God's creation from verses 4 through 8 for worship. We see a movement through the biblical traditional liturgy, which many commentators argue follows that uh, Sabbath order of worship from the Old Covenant, complete with a retelling of creation and redemption using psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, which we'll find later on in both of these chapters. And even we see a doxology in Revelation 5, verse 13. And all of this is met with a final and loud resounding amen in Revelation 5, verse 14. See, when we worship, or when we understand, rather, the whole of Revelation 4 through 5 as a worship service unto the triune God, all of the colorful brilliancy here in this passage, the symmetry amongst the worshipers, the images of the calmed crystal sea and spirits and thrones and crowns and all the like, begin to find their greater chief end. It's through the vehicle of apocalyptic literature that this vision conveys to us actual, specific truths about God that transcend our own ability to rationalize the same. See, he alone has authority over all lesser thrones, every last one of them. In his presence, all must bow in humble adoration. Nothing unclean and impure can come to approach him, and no one else can claim such dominion and honor as this one seated on the throne. All of these precious biblical truths and so many more begin just to rush like a mighty river to our attention as we read and mull over this chapter. Furthermore, the one seated on the throne is said to have this appearance of jasper and carnelian, precious gemstones. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, signifying, I believe, an aura of sorts, the glow of God's own holiness radiating. And here even we see the full spectrum of light bursting forth from that heavenly throne and encircling the whole host around him. And beyond the brilliancy of refracted light, even off that pristine sea, the appearance of the exalted one is described for us through, again, colors of precious gemstones, earthy or earthly elements, if you will. Therefore, images of strength met with beauty, royalty and purity, heaven and earth, all command our attention here in this scene. And over it all reigns one king on the throne. It's here in verse 4 that we begin to see the exercise of divine sovereignty take shape. Verse 4 again says this for us. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, scholars have long debated over whom these elders were exactly. 
Uh, many believe that they were indicative of the 12 uh, patriarchs, the 12 apostles as well. Some believe that these are simply angelic beings, um, even maybe the starry hosts of heaven being seated, figuratively speaking, around God. Some believe that they are indicative of the 24 uh, books of the Tanakh, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Personally, I'm inclined to believe that they are indeed angelic beings of some form or another, but that they serve primarily as representatives of the church, of the Old and New Testament alike, the 12 and 12 to, uh, together, making 24. But regardless of how we interpret this actual picture, what is most clearly presented to us is the significance. See, what we are made to behold is an encirclement around the throne taking place, complete with an array of thrones and signs of purity met in each of these lesser people upon these 24 thrones. And in the center, (laughs) the magnitude of flashing lightning, loud rumblings, literally voices or sounds in the Greek, and cracks of thunder complete with the Holy Spirit's presence represented by the seven burning torches of fire draw us not to the ring itself of worship, but to the one who is worthy of all the worship. Here in the center sits our God with absolute dominion and control. But notice this. In the midst of the most holy, all-consuming fire, as Hebrew describes God, Our God, who dwells in this unapproachable light, makes his reign known to us through this revelation. And he makes his reign known to us as a reign of peace above all else. How do we know this? Well, before him is the sea, as the scripture states. The sea that is before him is made as fine glass. It tears not move an inch before him. The sea that is throughout scripture indicative of chaos, death, destruction, even judgment against God's own enemies in the flood. Here is as smooth as glass. And it reminds me of the gospel accounts of Jesus himself, as we were talking about earlier. As Jesus stepped out upon the Sea of Galilee, which I had the privilege of visiting years ago myself, always given over to tempestuous uh, winds and turbulent uh, weather and whatnot, even this sea, as Jesus steps upon it, cannot rage in the slightest against our God. Our Lord, the King Eternal, has the power to utterly quell every degree of rebellion against him. Brothers, do you believe this? In your own ministries, when you are faced with antagonism, when you feel the weight of your own sin indwelling within you, do you hear the louder voice and yet calm voice of Jesus say, as he said upon that Sea of Galilee, It is I. Do not be afraid. And again in John chapter 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. For the peace of Christ, brothers, was made solely through his atoning death upon the cross for us. That right there is true peace that brings us to this state of worship. Now accordingly so, you and I must worship our kingdom with awestruck wonder especially if we desire to lead our people in the same. But we are also invited to worship with truest joy. And this point is a bit shorter as a heads up. (laughs) Truest joy, though, in response to his personal kindness. See, beginning halfway through verse 6, 
where that split in the paragraph happens, we begin to see a repetition of sorts take place again and again. The phrase around the throne is used repeatedly. And I'm convinced that this is not arbitrary. See, in the Greek, that word kuklo, or around or surrounding, as it's interpreted, and its derivatives in, uh, illustrate for us a, a ring in effect of not only worshipers, but even items for worship surrounding the throne. As the text says, on each side of the throne, from the front to the back, from side to side, it is met with a living being or creature, as the ESV puts it. And John describes these beings as appearing like a lion, like an ox, a man, and an eagle. Now, each of these four living beings has six wings, and I believe this is an intentional uh, callback to the cherubim seated upon the Ark of the Covenant. It's also, I believe, a direct reference to Isaiah's prophetic vision of the seraphim in particular with six wings in Isaiah 6. But according to Revelation 4, verse 8, these living beings are full of eyes all around and within. And there's a special note here in this passage about that. In other words, the holy magnitude of God utterly surrounds them on all sides. They can't not look away from him. And their attention is forever captivated. Now, as it regards these uh, creaturely elements concerning the lion, the ox, the man, even the uh, uh, eagle imagery, scholars are not, of course, in perfect agreement over this. Some have suggested that they signify the whole of God's created order of beings, namely untamed creatures, tamed creatures, uh, birds of flight, even man as the, uh, as the chief of God's creation. Others believe that the fourfold nature of these winged beings refer to the four directional winds or even four geographic corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. But whatever the case, I believe we do well to understand them as being, first and foremost, angelic beings in tandem with the other prophetic texts that describe them as such, such as Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 21, and again Isaiah 6, 1 and following. But more importantly, I believe that their purpose here before the throne of God is to serve as a declaration of praise that, again, encircles God day and night. After all, their presence around the throne serves to show us now for a third and even fourth time in verses 6 and 8 respectively that their existence is to direct the worship of the surrounding creation to the eternal creator king. As such, we see their circular continuous song heard resounding in the Trishagion of verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Purity, power, and eternality are ascribed to our God by these living beings in repetitions of three threefold statements. Holy, holy, holy as an attribution of God's complete transcendence, otherness, and purity. Lord God Almighty, a threefold statement often used of so-called God kings of that first century time frame. And finally, who was, is, and is to come, the proclamation of his eternal, God's eternal, that is, kingly reign, which far supersedes any temporal reign of any earthly king or ruler. And then echoing this response, we see the 24 elders, and we see them in verses 9 through 11, bowing down to the king repetitively over and over again, the king who lives forever and ever as they cast their crowns before the throne, declaring creation's loud anthem finally in verse 11. 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you, again, created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Friends, the repetition of kingly motifs, of crowns, of thrones, of precious gems, of absolute God-King status and sovereign rule and reign over all things are here now on full display before us at this point in this worship service. But as we begin to zoom out at this point in our text, we see, um, I believe what is no accident, a far greater picture going on here. See, as we read Revelation, it's so easy for us to become enamored with our own finite and limited understanding of these images. We can spend countless hours mulling over what exactly these figures, the numbers, the themes, and the like all mean, and lose sight of the underlying message for us as God's people today. Well, what is the message then of Revelation 4? I believe it is primarily that God is forever holy. But as a point of application, I believe that God is even speaking to us in application through this message in saying that he has chosen his creation to be, in effect, his figurative joy and crown around him. See, amidst all of the imagery of praise literally encircling the throne, amidst the pictures of jewels and rainbows and a multitude of lesser crowns and lesser thrones, the image of a far greater single crown is here in front of us. And it's a crown that is fit for the King Eternal. As he declared it in himself in Genesis 1.31, God said that the sum of creation is very good. And even here in Revelation 4, verse 11, it picks up on that same creation theme by telling us, by God's will, all things existed and were created. After all, he does all that he pleases. But you and I are well acquainted with sin and its effects upon us, aren't we? We ourselves, as the image bearers of a king, know firsthand through scripture the holiness of God and yet our own brokenness in attending him in worship. We feel the disjointed fellowship with God that sin has taken a toll on in our lives, and especially the lives as we see uh, those whom we serve and love dearly in our own flocks. In the ministry, we often have to handle the worst of criticisms. I have yet to meet a pastor who has not had to deal with these things. And in our service to God's people, we are those who very well and, and in the right way deal with the whole range of human emotions and, uh, emotions and psyches. We are called to engage with impoverished souls who are so worn out oftentimes and often disenchanted with the things of Christ. And even as we lead them in kingdom work, if we're being honest with ourselves, we feel the same way. We become disenchanted. We become easily tired. We so often lean on our own strength as opposed to the strength of the heavenly king. In our shepherding, then, we need to feed the sheep while rightfully discerning and guarding against the attacks of the enemy, most certainly. But in the midst of our teaching, in the midst of our leading, our protecting of the sheep, and even our shepherding, we must be fueled week by week by what the word of truth says, by what the word of God says about us as ministers of the gospel but more importantly, as dearly loved children. See, friends, you are 
I believe, as this text is saying to us, the joy and crown of God. And at the last, he will also be yours. Isaiah 28 verse 5 tells us as much in saying, in that day, speaking of the eschaton, (laughs) the day in which all of us as God's people are gathered like grain at the harvest to a beautiful harvest of that. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back at the battle, uh, turn back the battle gate. Pastors, you are those who turn back the battle gate. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so in Christ, this is our joy-filled duty to serve in this way. But it's also our eschatological inheritance. God as our crown, we as his. See, even now you serve the lamb who is worthy of all praise, who was slain and yet is now alive forevermore. So let this message of divine grace warm your hearts and spur you on in your own Christian ministry, whatever that might be. As the Apostle Paul said to the church in Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says of the people of God, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming, that final day? Is it not you? For you are our crown and joy. And so, brothers, in closing, know that the Lord Jesus, the great and true shepherd of his sheep, which he bought by his own blood, sees you as his joy and crown. As scandalous as that sounds to us, and I'm still taking it into myself, the glory of his redeeming work accomplished for you and applied to you by his spirit is that you and I are now considered crowns made fit for the king of all kings. With this in mind, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word that has been given to us, and we ask that this message of redeeming love through Christ would be uh, seared upon our hearts, that it would continue to go with us um, as we were reminded of your love from Revelation 4. God, we thank you for this time that we have been able to gather as a class to um, grow in the word together, and we ask that uh, this time would continue to be profitable for each and every one of us here as ministers of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.